concerning what we see today. And today we're going to talk about a prophecy concerning culture. Uh, and more specifically, we're going to talk about the issue of socialism. And today we're going to tell you about socialism, give you some history of it, things like that. And then the next week, we're going to look at some similarities of where we are today, even in our own country, and what does it mean? And then what do we do or how should we live in light of that knowledge that we have? And so that's the direction that we're going with this. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, the Bible says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Again, we're going to speak on a, a prophecy concerning culture. And there were some specific things in Noah's day that Jesus says are going to be similar. And just like it was in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. I'm going to read for you a story, or at least part of a story, and I want you, as we work our way through this story, I want you to look for similarities, listen for similarities, all right? Uh, the story is about a man named Ivan Simonovis. Ivan Simonovis was uh, a, uh, a man who really had celebrity status in the country of Venezuela uh, for a time, and the story is like this, under the cover of darkness, a middle-aged man inched out the window of his seventh-story apartment, then silently repelled 75 feet to the ground. A pair of bolt cutters snipped off his ankle monitor, and the man jumped into a waiting car. This was no movie. After 15 years of imprisonment on bogus charges, Ivan Simonovis was escaping Venezuela. Simonovis had once been a Venezuelan hero. As a key member of an important SWAT team, he ended a seven-hour hostage situation, all of it captured on live television. That instance or incident propelled him to celebrity status in the country. After being appointed safety officer for Caracas, he dedicated himself to fighting crime and removing the corruption that had defined the capital's police force for years. Things changed when Simonovis ran afoul of Hugo Chavez, Venezuela's Marxist president and emerging dictator. In 2004, Simonovis was imprisoned for protecting protesters. He was falsely charged with ordering police to fire on pro-government demonstrators. But in reality, Chavez viewed the highly decorated and well-liked officer as a potential rival. So he falsely accused him with crimes against humanity. The trial was a sham, and in the blink of an eye, Ivan was behind bars with no hope of reprieve. He was mostly kept in a six-by-six-foot cell and allowed to see the sunlight for only 10 minutes a day. In 2014, he was moved to a house arrest to seek treatment for 19 chronic health conditions that were mostly caused from his false imprisonment. In 2019, he made his daring escape after 15 years of imprisonment. After his escape, he spent three weeks evading security in a cat and mouse pursuit. A 14-hour ride in a small fishing boat got him to a Caribbean island, and from there, he flew to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. 
President Trump invited him as a guest to the last State of the Union address. Ivan recalled when Venezuela was the wealthiest nation in South America. The per capita income of its citizens was greater than those of China and Japan, almost rivaling the income of US citizens. The people of Ivan's generation enjoyed religious liberty, political freedom, personal dignity, and economic opportunity. But when oil prices crashed in the 1980s, and then again in the 90s, the Venezuelan economy experienced a dip. That dip became a dive in 1998 when the people elected Chavez as their president. Once in power, Chavez relentlessly implemented the socialist playbook formulated by the Soviet Union, Cuba, China, and other nations. His first task was to rewrite the Venezuelan constitution, guaranteeing citizens the so-called free rights of government-provided health care, college education, and social justice. When the Supreme Court ruled against Chavez on several important issues, he responded by stacking the court with 12 new justices, all loyal to him. Socialism totally engulfed the country when Chavez was re-elected in 2006. Fully in control of the courts and the legislature, he moved quickly to nationalize the media, removing all voices of dissent. Then he authorized government agencies to seize privately owned wealth and property from Venezuelan citizens, all in the name of fairness and equality. Chavez took control of the nation's oil industry, expelling foreign investors and influence. He nationalized power companies, farms, mines, banks, and grocery stores. His final step was to eliminate term limits for elected officials, setting himself up to rule for the rest of his life in the style of Russia's Stalin and Cuba's Castro. But not even Chavez could evade the last enemy. He died in 2013 from cancer. But his hand-picked successor, Nicolas Maduro, continued to implement Chavez's agenda, even going further in some areas to force a complete Marxist agenda on the people. Today, Venezuela is descending into anarchy, and record numbers of migrants are fleeing northward, trying to reach the border into the United States. So, I'm going to talk about socialism. Like I said, I'm going to give you the history of it, some background. And then next time, we're going to talk about similarities, where we are today, what it means. And then in light of that, how should we be living? What should we be doing as God's people? So you say, okay, pastor, what, what does that story have to do with us? Venezuela has proven again that socialism is a bad idea. So what? Well, we should care and we should be alert and we should be on guard because socialist visions and policies are very much invading the United States today. Consider this. Hugo Chavez had plenty of cheerleaders in the United States during his rise. Many Hollywood stars like Sean Penn, Michael Moore, Oliver Stone, Danny Glover, to name a few, and there are many, many others. Socialism for some reason, seems to hold an almost hypnotic power over many people. Usually it's the elites or the thinkers of society. 
even with all of the compelling evidence of nations gone by that have failed in socialism, it seems like it doesn't matter. Uh, 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 it, it seems to have this hypnotic grasp or power over people's minds. And it's not just in the elites anymore. It's not just in the, you know, the university crowd and so on or the thinkers. It's spilling into common culture. In two, in, in, in last year, in 2020, there was a poll that was taken that showed that 40% of Americans have a favorable view of socialism. 40% as a whole. Even more frightening is that 47% of millennials and 49% of Gen Zers have a favorable view of socialism. That is, the, that is the next primary voting block of our country. But get this. There was a, a poll done in 2019 that found that 61% of 18 to 24-year-olds have a positive reaction to socialism. Now, when they're challenged by you know, people like Charlie Kirk, for example, if you don't know who he is, you, you could look him up, um, or Ben Shapiro, or, or other people, other you know, more conservative-type personalities that, that have these platforms, when they're challenged with, with facts concerning Venezuela and Cuba and Soviet Union and other places like that, they say, they say things like this. Well, there's plenty of countries where socialism works. The problem is, is that those countries that they list are not actually truly socialist countries. But they like to prop them up as socialist countries. So when you challenge them with the facts concerning these real socialist countries, they say, well, that's not true socialism. Their idea of socialism is something that is fabricated. It's something that is made up in their mind that has never existed in the history of mankind. It's some utopia that they've imagined that they tried to, pur to, to purport as, as real socialism, but it's never existed. They argue something that is imaginary. This is why polls like the 2020 poll showing that 40% of Americans have some sort of favorable view. Another reason for that is how the media and others uh, uh, have such a, a, a huge platform and influential voice that, that they can speak straight up lies, never held accountable, but it influences people's thinking. This is why 61% of 18 to 24-year-olds have a positive reaction to socialism. because they don't know anything about the reality of real socialism. Now, last week, we were in 2 Timothy 3, in verse 1, that said, In the last days, perilous times shall come. We looked at that word perilous. It means difficult. It means dangerous it means hard times. In the last days, perilous, difficult, dangerous, hard times will come. And we looked at the heart of men. What will men be like? Men will be lovers of their own selves, and they'll be boasters and proud and, and so on. We looked at the fact that they'll be without natural affection and, and false accusers and incontinent, no self-control and fierce, despisers of those that are good, having hatred for anything that is righteous. We looked at the heart of mankind. And, and we, we talked about the, the days that are coming as Jesus uh, warned. Jesus says it like this, though, in Matthew 24 and verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood... 
They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus says there's going to be a mentality, there's going to be a way of life, there's going to be a culture, there's going to be a thinking that was similar to the days of Noah that will be present when Jesus comes again. And the people in Noah's day didn't even know until the flood came and took them all away. But why didn't they know? Was it because there was no warning, that there was no voice? That's not true. Noah was a preacher, a preacher of righteousness. Noah warned for 120 years. They had evidence of Noah building the ark, and yet the Bible says they didn't know. That has to speak something of their mindset. And we ask also the question, well, what were those days of Noah really like if Jesus says as it was in the days of Noah? Well, Genesis Genesis 6, 5, go over there with me. It describes it for us, what the days of Noah were like. In Genesis chapter 6, in verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So as it was in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we find that it was wicked and it was evil continually in the days of Noah. Going back to what we talked about last week in 2 Timothy 3, you find the condition of the hearts of men. Wickedness and evil. Not only that, we find that it was violent. In verse 11, we find the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. It was violent in Noah's day. Man, I don't know of a time, at least in my life, when it's ever been more dangerous than it is right now. To just be a regular person walking through a city in in the United States of America could get you killed. You go to the wrong place. Right? But what about other parts of the world? Man, Brother Noah, he knows places you don't go to in, in Beirut. And if I ever get the privilege, Lord willing, to go over there, we've tried several times. I still want to do that. I still want to be there with him. If we ever get the privilege to go and be there, Noah has already told me, there are places we'll take you, but there are definitely places you can't go and we're not going to take you. Why? Because it'll get you killed. Violence. The protesting in American cities is really not anything other than just violence. Even back in the well, the Jacob Blake shooting and the Kyle Rittenhouse case, the, the facts came out. And I remember the prosecutor in that case talking about Rosenbaum. He was the first guy. And you see pictures of him, and he's just angry. 
And he's just in a rage that night. And pe people who were also, quote, protesting were also backing away from him and didn't want anything to do with him because, because of how violent he was. And he's throwing around the N-word all over the place. And people are like, what in the world? This guy's crazy. The prosecutor, to try to diminish his behavior, his demeanor, says, oh, you know, so he lit a dumpster on fire. So what? Big deal. So he stole a trailer, a flatbed trailer, and put it out in the middle of the road and lit it on fire. So what? It's not that big. He didn't deserve to die for that. Well, in the reality, he lit a dumpster on fire, and they were in the process of pushing it to a gas station to blow it up. Violence. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. God looked down. He saw that the earth was corrupt and the earth was filled with violence. Look at verse 12. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So God looks down on the earth and it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. That word corrupt or corrupted, it means ruined or wasted. In other words, God looked down and mankind had ruined himself. Mankind had wasted himself. I think it's also interesting that in Noah's day, they ignored and they ridiculed the warning from the man of God. In Genesis chapter 7, in verse 7, the Bible says, And Noah went in, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Now you look a little farther, and you find that only eight people entered into the ark. Eight people of all of the population of the known world of the earth at that time uh, every person other than eight died in the flood why because they didn't have a warning well we look in second peter chapter 2 and verse 5 and the bible tells us there that noah was a preacher of righteousness noah was a preacher of righteousness. Go to Hebrews chapter 11 with me, all right? Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, the Bible says, By faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Notice this, that Noah was warned of God. He heard God's warning. He was warned of things not seen as yet, that the earth was going to be destroyed in a flood. And he moved with fear because he believed God, and he prepared this ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world. Meaning that this ark that he is building 
from a warning from God was, a, was the very thing that was also a warning, besides the fact that he was a preacher of righteousness, it was the very thing that was also warning people that judgment is coming, this is the place of safety, get in the ark and you'll be saved. They had a warning. They saw it with their own eyes. They no doubt heard it with their own ears, as Noah being a preacher of righteousness. And Noah built and preached for 120 years, and not one single individual outside of his immediate family believed his warning. The people were so indifferent to what was coming that it was too late when the judgment actually came. And Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And the Bible says they ate, they drank, they married, they were giving a marriage, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. The people were so indifferent in spite of the warning of what was coming that it was too late when it actually came. The heedlessness of the people in Noah's day is going to be duplicated in the last days of our world history. I believe a day much like ours. A day when ideologies like socialism can take over to the total brainwashing and denial of otherwise intelligent people. You've seen the history of it. You've seen what it's done throughout the course of time, and yet people are still today embracing it as a positive and a good thing. Brainwash, denial of what will come. You know what? I don't, I don't know, I don't have any facts to back this up, but what I have heard seems to verify it, and it's this. You could probably ask anyone, who has lived under communism, they've lived in that system, that society, and they're free from it. You could probably ask anybody who's lived under communism, and they'll probably tell you that socialism is an invasive weed. It was planted by Karl Marx. It only leads to death and destruction. Despite its catastrophic failures, and despite the warnings of people that are being put out right now, and there's lots of voices of warning right now. People who've come from socialist countries, other places, they're in America, they're like, what are you doing? Despite their warnings, it keeps spreading over all the earth. And here's really why I'm coming to this point and even talking about this. Because the question comes to mind, will socialism be the dominant political philosophy on earth when, when the tribulation begins? It seems likely, friend. Socialism is tailor-made for the Antichrist and his reign. Why? Number one, because it creates global conditions that will always bring stress and trouble. Never once has socialism ever worked to the benefit of people. It fits right into the perilous times that will come. 
Number two, socialism demands a one-world system of government. It absolutely demands a one-world system of government. Now, go to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Why don't you look at verse 7? <clears throat> Revelation 13, 7 says, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. So we find here, concerning the Antichrist, <clears throat> and concerning the fact that socialism demands a one-world system of government, we know from the Word of God that during the tribulation there's going to be a one-world system, a one-world government, a one-world currency, a one-world religion. And we find here that the whole world marvels and gives allegiance to the Antichrist. We also find here that he has power over all kindreds languages and nations he has power over the entire world every nation every language every kindred kindred verse uh, 8 tells us that all people worship him we know as well from the book of revelation that the antichrist is empowered by satan in chapter 12 in verse 9, not only is he empowered by Satan, but he's also aided by the false prophet from the one world religion. In verse 9 of chapter 12, when the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. In chapter 13 and verse 14. In fact, let's go back to Verse 11, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth." by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. You don't get a more 
perfect description of what a one-world system and a one-world government would look like. You can't buy, you can't sell, you can't do anything without receiving the mark. The false prophet has power just like the beast had. He, he causes all people to worship the first beast. And if you don't give allegiance to him, you're going to be killed. It's pretty crazy stuff there, huh? I think socialism, it's likely, it seems likely... That socialism is going to be the dominant political philosophy on earth when the tribulation begins. Because it's tailor-made for the Antichrist and his reign. It creates this one-world system. And the Word of God actually warns us of this kind of deception. You notice several times we read how he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth. In Colossians chapter 2... In verse 8, the Bible says, Colossians 2.8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The word of God gives a warning. Beware, lest any man spoil you. That word spoil means to carry off or to be carried away. To be carried away or carried off through what? Through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world. Rudiments is the principal elements or the base elements that come from the world and not after Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll get to this in our Wednesday evening studies, but in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8, what do we find? This is referring to the Antichrist here in verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There is great deception that is present. There's great deception that is coming. So, with all that in mind, what is socialism exactly? How should we view it? How should we define it? Well, listen to the definition that's offered up by the World Socialist Party of the United States. Isn't that an interesting title? The World Socialist Party of the United States. Here's what they say socialism is. The establishment of a system of society based on the common ownership and democratic control of the means and the instruments for producing and distributing wealth 
by and in the interest of society as a whole. We call this common ownership, but other terms we regard as synonymous, such as communism and socialism. So, what is it? The establishment of a system of society that is based on common ownership. The control of the means and instruments for producing and distributing wealth in the interest of society as a whole. Well, that actually sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That sounds wonderful. Sounds like a, a utopian world. Like we could live in great wealth and we can live in prosperity and we can live in peace. Everybody's on the same playing field and it's all grand. That's what it sounds like. Socialists believe the world's means of production, including infrastructure, farms, factories, energy, natural resources, medicine, and more, should be under the control of the people. In other words, society as a whole should own the raw materials and systems that produce wealth. Well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That sounds right. Of course, there's no way to make decisions based on such a loose concept as the people. So under socialism, the government becomes the sole authority and controller of the means of production. It's happened in every case. However, governments are controlled by specific people, often the kinds of people who seek out power. And those people are entirely corruptible by greed and selfishness and lust and vindictiveness and violence and the overwhelming desire for authority. And as more power flows to the government, the handful at the top become dictatorial. In every case, it's always happened. They use the same ideology. They use the same methodology as other countries have in the past. And I'll get to that in just a second. This last year, a more conservative news network ran a story about a Chinese woman named Xi Van Fleet. She had survived the brutal communist regime of dictator Mao Zedong. In an impassioned speech to a Virginia school board, she elaborated on the similarities between what happened in China during the Chinese Cultural Revolution and what is happening in the United States right now. And here's what she said. She said they use the same ideology. They use the same methodology, even the same vocabulary, and with the same goal. The ideology is cultural Marxism. And we were divided into groups as the oppressors and the oppressed. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the takeout methodology is also very similar. It's cancel culture. We basically canceled the whole Chinese civilization pre-communism. In other words, what she's saying is they completely erased all of, all of China's uh, civilization before communism so that the next generation people would forget what the Chinese people were so they can rewrite history. 
Sounds really familiar, doesn't it? There was an author of a book who, who, who the book it was entitled this, We Will Not Be Silenced. And the author of that book writes concerning the kind of Marxism that we're seeing today. By the way, socialism, Marxism, cultural Marxism, all of these words are, are synonymous. They're all, they all mean the same thing. You might hear it in different terms or, or, or said different ways, but they all mean exactly the same thing. And they lead to communism for sure. But the author of this book who said, we will not be silenced, writes concerning the kind of Marxism that we're seeing today. He said this, he said, today we face what is known as cultural Marxism. It is not being imposed on people on the war battlefields. Instead, it's a form of Marxism or socialism that, wind, or that, that, that wins the hearts and minds of people incrementally by the gradual transformation of the culture. Bombarded with exaggerated and illusionary promises like free government health care and free college tuition and equality and all of those things, right? You see uh, liberal states all over the place. One of the, the, this is how they get reelected. They always make these grand promises. And they always talk about equality and how the, the, the underserved and the underprivileged, it's not fair for you and you're oppressed by the white guy and, 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 and they're the oppressors and you're the oppressed and they create this divide. And then they talk about, you know, we need, we need fair housing and all of that kind of stuff. <clears throat> I think I might have mentioned this before. All of the blue states that have had power for, for decades, they've got the governorship, they've got the legislature, they've got the courts, they've got it all. They have had power for decades. They've got all the power to make their agendas and their, their programs come to pass, right? They promise this fair housing and they promise all these free things and they promise equality and this and that. But you look at their city streets. And they're full of tent cities of homeless people. They're full of drugs. They're full of needles. They're full of feces. They're full of garbage and trash. Meanwhile, they get to live in their mansion with their gated community and their bodyguards and their weapons and all those things and driving their fancy cars. They don't believe in equality, but they make the promises. That's how they win the hearts of people. And this author is saying instead, this, this, this cultural Marxism isn't imposed on the war battlefield. Instead, it's a form of Marxism that wins the hearts and minds of people incrementally by gradually transforming the culture. Being bombarded with exaggerated and illusionary promises, people accept it because they want to. They welcome it because they're convinced of its benefits. It promises hope and change income equality, racial harmony, and justice based on secular values rather than biblical Christian morality. It is known for professing inclusion rather than exclusion and promoting sexual freedom rather than what they view as restrictive ethics from the Bible. It's not, it is not stifled by allegedly narrow religious traditions, but espouses progressive ideas that are worthy of an enlightened future. And gradually, little by little, the minds of people are won over 
by these illusionary promises and the culture begins to change. Are you still here? Did I lose you? I hope not. That's why 60% of 18 to 24-year-olds have a positive reaction and view to socialism. Now let's talk about the roots of socialism for a minute so we can better understand what it is. In order to better understand it, we actually need to understand Karl Marx, the founder. When you understand who and what he was and what he believed, we can trace much of what is happening today back to him. And even just a little study, and I didn't do a lot, but even just a little study on the life of Karl Marx, what you soon realize is that he wasn't just a hater of God. He was actually a cheerleader for the devil. His family thought that he was possessed by a demon. And I read, I got a hold of a a little bit of information, a biographer of Karl Marx. And this biographer described him like this. He said he had the devil's view of the world and the devil's malignity. Sometimes he seemed to know that he was accomplishing works of evil. According to this writer, Marx was a tyrant, he was a racist, he was misogynistic, and he was a radical who hated God and wanted to see the world burn. That was the description of the biographer concerning Karl Marx. In an 1837 poem that Marx wrote himself, it was entitled The Pale Maiden, Marx composed these self-described words. He said, thus heaven I forfeited. I know it full well. My soul, once true to God, is chosen for hell. In 1849, one year after publishing his crowning work, The Communist Manifesto, Marx was evicted by his landlord who was fed up with his filthiness. And his landlord wrote this about Karl Marx. He said, Karl drank too much. He smoked too much. He never exercised. He suffered from warts and boils due to lack of washing. He stunk. As for the family apartment, everything was broken down. It was busted, spilled, smashed, falling apart from toys and chairs and dishes and cups to tables and on and on and on. That's how he lived. His family life, his wife was miserable in their marriage. She wished that she could die. It is said that she had this thought daily in her life. She pondered the thought of suicide. Well, he had two daughters. Both of them fulfilled their mom's wishes. Both of them committed suicide. Marx himself died in despair on March 14th, 1883. But just before his death, he wrote these words to his friend Friedrich Engels. He said, how pointless and empty is life, but yet how desirable. I don't want to die. I want to live, but yet living is pointless and empty. What a sad, sad commentary. He was buried in Highgate Cemetery, which is considered to be the center of Satanism in London. 
And here's why I said all of that. I wonder how many who are championing socialism and Marxism are aware of the poisonous roots of this doctrine. I'm pretty sure they're not. Their founder was a hideous person, and what he was, socialism became. You say, okay, <clears throat> we've got all those facts, but here's what we really need to understand. This is actually a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle of truth versus lies. It's what Ephesians 6.12 describes for us. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, we're not going to take the time to do this today. But what's coming next is that we're going to note some characteristics of this devilish ideology. What we're going to note and what we're going to see is that Marxism is anti-God. Socialism is anti-God. Karl Marx hated Christianity. Here's what he said. He saw, he saw Christianity as a source of oppression. To him, religion was the opium of the people and it needed to be scraped away. Those were his words. Marxism is anti-God. Marxism, socialism, is totalitarian. Even though it claims to be for the people, it quickly becomes totalitarian. On a smaller scale, friend, it doesn't take a lot to see this happening. Just look at what's happening with COVID, even in the United States, even in this state. Look at the city of Anchorage. Look at those who are in control in the legislature. It's already happening. Totalitarianism. It doesn't take a lot to figure it out. Marxism is divisive. Marxism thrives on division. In historic Marxism, the division was promoted between classes of people. The oppressed and the oppressor. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Look what's happening in the United States. When people play the race card or they play the victim card and they talk about reparations, you know, from generations past that have nothing to do with anybody today, what are they doing? They're creating a divide on racial lines, on economic lines, and the victim card is played all the time. There's the oppressed and the oppressors. That's what's happening, friends. Marxism is divisive. We're also going to look at how Marxism is very deadly. The most colossal case of political carnage in history has come from socialism and Marxism. And I'll tell you about it. Even Adolf Hitler got nowhere close to the death toll that has come from socialism and Marxism. So I'm going to talk to you about that. But then we're going to see what does it mean? Where are we today? 
And we'll draw some similarities as we look at some of the major political things that are happening in our culture right now, from the destruction of monuments all the way to the defunding of the police. It's all intertwined. And after we look at all that, then we're going to conclude with what should we do? How should we live as God's people armed with this knowledge? Because this isn't really about the temporal plane. This isn't really about, honestly, what is happening in America. This, this is about what God's people need to be doing and how we should be living in these last days because we're here for such a time as this. And so what should this information do? I, I'm, I believe in freedom. I believe in, in, in liberty for all men. I believe in, in a, a American, at least historical American idealism. I believe in all of those things. But you know what? Saving America is not the primary purpose of God's people. However... No matter what age or what world we live in, the primary purpose of God's people is still to preach the gospel because it's the only thing that can actually save America. And so again, to reiterate, the reason we're talking about this stuff is not to be political. It is to inform you, but it's also to give us some insight and some perspective on what it ought to cause us to do and how we should live as God's people because God still has a job for us to do. Amen? So no matter what happens, what may come, the Lord's in control. We've got our marching orders. God's will is going to be done in this world. And we get to be a part of it. We get to be his agents. We get to be his servants. And so, we can get all caught up in the hysteria we can get all caught up in the trouble. We can get caught up in the politics. We can get caught up in the fight. And we should have a hand in the fight. But this world is still not my home. Amen? And he is still king. And so we keep the right focus and the right perspective. So we'll talk about all those things next time. Amen? It's kind of heavy, but it's good. And we need these kinds of things because it prepares us for the days that we live in and what's coming tomorrow. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for its truth that is so clarifying, that gives the complete picture. And we could easily be carried away, carried off with ideologies, philosophies of this world if it wasn't for your word and its truth. We could get so caught up in the temporal that we become of no value in the spiritual. And armed with the knowledge of the word of God and armed with the knowledge of what is happening in our world, we can see through it. We can see what is going on and how it plays into the will of God being accomplished in this world. And in turn, we can live the right way. And I pray, Lord, that you'd equip us and use us in these exciting, interesting days that we live in. But you put us here for such a time as this. 
Lord, protect your people. Lord, help us to grow close to you, to walk with you. Lord, help us to put on the armor of God as well so that we can stand in the evil day. Thank you for the day. We thank you for all that has been said and done. And may in our hearts Christ be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen.